The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, which starts on page 567 of your pew Bible. And as always, if you don't have a Bible at home, you are welcome to take one of these pew Bibles home with you. But otherwise, I encourage you to read along. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Today's reading is found on page 830 in your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take a pew Bible as a gift from us to you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Christ. Matthew 24, 29 to 44. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lessons. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be The coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. 
for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Glory to you, Lord Christ, and praise to you, Lord Christ. Oops, sorry. The gospel of the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Let's be seated. (laughs) That's like one of those multiple choice options where it's just like, like, check D. All of the above are true. It's good. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Well, once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. Uh, For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, some things for you to know. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Advent. And I know that the church liturgical calendar is familiar to some of you, but probably new and strange to others of you. The the church year doesn't exactly follow uh, our standard kind of American Western society calendar. It doesn't begin with January 1st. It begins with the first Sunday of Advent, beginning with anticipation, anticipating the coming of Christ. And so for this season, we have put together a new sermon series. We're calling it Advent, Anticipating the Renewal of All Things in Jesus. And here's what we did. Some of you might be familiar with this thing called the lectionary. It's a very old kind of old-fashioned Bible reading plan. And what we've done is we've taken this ancient Bible reading plan and we've looked at the different scripture texts that are assigned for this season of the church year. And me and the other folks that are preaching during these next four weeks looked at all of those texts and decided that we would all choose the Isaiah readings from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And we used those to put together a little four-part sermon series on Isaiah. And we found a common thread between all of those texts, which is they are all anticipating texts. They are all texts that direct our attention forward, anticipating the renewal of all things in God's Messiah, who is Jesus, but doing so in different ways. And so we're going to be talking about things like renewal through formation, or renewal through judgment, or renewal through wisdom, renewal through flourishing. And we're going to track with this over the next four weeks. Today is renewal through formation. Now, here's what else you need to know. Today not only marks the beginning of a new liturgical year, it also marks uh, Redeemer's six-year birthday or six-year anniversary. Um, I never really know whether to call it a birthday or an anniversary. Like, are we a kid or a bride? Maybe both. Um, But our parish is six years old today, and that's something worth celebrating. And so to that end, I want to invite all of you to come to a parish town hall meeting two weeks from today on Sunday evening, December 11th at 7 p.m., And this is one of those, I I don't ask for this very often, y'all, but this is one of those moments in the year where we say to everybody, please, everybody find a way to get there. Um, If that means we have to recruit every single babysitter in the Metro Richmond area to make it happen, then let's do that. But let's all find a way to be together and have an all-parish town hall meeting on Sunday evening, December 11th. And we'll do three things. We'll look backward over what God has done in us and through us as a church over the past years. We'll give kind of a state of the union. Where are we right now as a church? And we'll do that not only programmatically and relationally, but also financially. There'll be a presentation of an annual report. But then we'll also look ahead 
and there'll be a conversation together about some new and clarified vision language for our church family to help us move forward into the coming year and hopefully into the years ahead. So if any of that, the backwards look, the state of the union, or the forward look is interesting to you, if you're curious about those things, please find a way to be there on Sunday, December 11th. Now, announcements are over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So as I uh, spent time this week reflecting on the past six years of Redeemer's very young and new and fresh journey as a, as a church plant, as a parish, I realized that there are a number of kind of common themes that have percolated up that I've heard from a number of you over the past years. And one of those common themes that I hear over and again, especially from new people who choose to make Redeemer their home, is I hear you express this desire to change or to grow, or for something to be different in your life. And, and you use words like grow or deepen, or you say things like, I want to be closer to God, or you say things like, I want to grow and deepen in my relationships. And as Rachel and I, over the past years, have host newcomers dinners at our house, where we have like 10 to 12 people come and gather around our kitchen table, and we ask people, you know, what, what brought you here? How did you find us? What's happening in your life that has led you to this point where you're interested in making Redeemer your home? This is one of the themes that we hear over and again. I, I want to change. Something in me needs to change. And I know that all of us are fresh off the heels of uh, Thanksgiving week, which means not everybody, but a lot of us spent time with family. And we're all coming off that time probably aware of the need to change, right? <laughs> and we not only feel that when we look out across our extended family and think, boy, I wish we were all a little bit different. But also, if you're anything like me, I come away from those moments thinking, what is wrong with me? Because I don't know about you guys, but when I get around my extended family, I revert back to a surly, sarcastic teenager, and I don't know why, but I inevitably find myself leaving these family gatherings thinking, why have I not grown or matured at all over the last 25 years? Why, when I get around my family, do I immediately revert back to all of the most immature parts of me that I thought were gone, but it turns out they're still there? You know, one of the things that I think we all have in common in kind of greater or lesser degrees, is this relative dissatisfaction with where we are right now. In the sense that we could all be a bit healthier, more mature, wiser, perhaps more content people. But then we wonder how we're actually to go about getting there. And this season of the year is actually one of the hardest times to contemplate that because there are so many other pressures and things and, you know, bright lights, literally, drawing our attention to other things other than our own need to change. But listen to this. I was reading a book last year by James Clear called Atomic Habits, and he wrote this sentence that just jumped out at me. Success is the product of daily habits, not once-in-a-lifetime transformations. And that stuck out to me because I realized that when I think about my own need to change, I mostly tend to think about it in terms of big transformations, like Let's change all at once. And I get out my planner and I begin to write down all the ways that I'm going to be different maybe in the new year. And it's like I'm writing down an entirely different human being than I am right now. There's like no connection between the man I am now and the person that I think I'm supposed to be. And so when I write down things, I, I, end, up saying, I end up thinking about these sort of like giant conversion stories. It's like most of us, when we think about this, we tend to think, well, 
you know, here's who I am right now. You know, I sit in my room watching HBO Max and ordering Pop-Tarts on Grubhub. But the person I want to be is someone who like leads yoga retreats in Tahiti and only eats raw celery, right? And there's like no line of connection between those two people. We want these big dramatic conversions. But the reality is that, yes, big dramatic conversions are nice, but what most of us need most of the time are small, gradual, patient changes, daily formation. And the story of the Bible, this is good news, actually dignifies that need for slow and gradual formation. Think about the story of the Bible. How does God shape his people through the story of scripture? Well, it begins in creation. Humans are these innocent creatures. They're not yet mature, and they are to practice their own formation in the image of God by doing all sorts of things. They're supposed to name creation. They're supposed to cultivate the earth. They're supposed to love each other and bring children into the world. All of these things help them grow and mature into the fullness of what it means to be made in the image of God. But then what happens? Then there's the fall into sin. Humanity chooses a spiritual shortcut to spiritual growth and to being like God, and they eat the forbidden fruit. Humanity descends into what we might call deformation. People don't sin once and then rebound into holiness, right? Sin leads to more sin, which leads to more sin, and this downward spiral of compounding selfishness and violence. Adam blames Eve, Cain murders Abel, Jacob swindles Esau, Joseph's brother sell him into slavery, King Saul tries to kill David, and then David rapes Bathsheba, and like it, on it goes. Like the Old Testament is not a cheerful read. Things just kind of get worse and worse and worse, and on it goes. And the image of God is further bent and twisted and marred and misshapen. And then what happens? Then Christ comes onto the scene as the one who fully gives himself, not only to his own formation, in obedience to his parents, in obedience to God the Father, in his study of scriptures, right? But Jesus also gives himself to the formation of other people, in his disciples and in the men and women who would follow him. And the church that Jesus established is always most fully herself when she embraces formation in the way of Jesus. Why? Well, because the church is that group of people who are moving through history towards the day when Christ will return to renew and restore all things and to fully form his people, the church, into the radiant and glorious and beautiful creatures that we were always meant to be. That's the story of the Bible. And in many ways, it's a story of formation. God forming a people for himself in the Old Testament in Israel and the New Testament in the church. And we are in this story. We're right there in the middle of it. And therefore, our desire to change, that instinct you have that there's a better self of you, better version of you out there somewhere, but you just kind of just can't get it, that instinct that lives inside of you is evidence of the fact that you are part of that story, that desire to be better. It's just a small clue that we are caught up in this larger and grander story of human formation. Now, if we're going to talk about Christian formation, we need a definition. And so if you're the kind of person who likes to write things down, here you go. Let's define Christian formation. It is the intentional adoption of practices and habits in order to shape one's interior life with God and with self and one's exterior life with others and with the world. I'll say it again. The intentional adoption of practices and habits in order to shape one's interior life with God and self and one's exterior life with others in the world. And the text that we're going to explore from the Old Testament book of Isaiah this morning is a vision of a people being formed. It's a vision of formation. Here's how the text begins. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days. That's how the text begins. It's a forward-looking view 
towards the day when God will fully form and reshape his people. And what we're gonna see as we explore it is there's a forming of the desire of God and then the forming of the peace of God. And so you're the kind of person who likes to have categories to think in. Here are your two categories. Desire for God and the peace of God. These are the two things that are being formed in God's people in this text. Let's explore it. In verse two, this vision goes like this. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. What is this about? Is this about a change in geography? Well, let's think about it. Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, sits up on a hill, and the temple in the city of Jerusalem sits up pretty high within the city. But it is by no means at all the tallest mountain around, not even close. And so is this text about a literal change in geography where tectonic plates move and somehow Jerusalem becomes the highest point of elevation, right? It's not Everest anymore, it's Jerusalem. I don't think so. No, this is not about a change in geography. It's about a change in desire. It's about a change in affection. Desire exists in order to be fulfilled. And you and I were made to desire God. We were made to be fulfilled by God. Think about it. We're in a season of eating, right? This past week, lots of eating. In the days to come, so much feasting to do. Just as hunger in your belly points to the existence and the goodness of food and the way it satiates and dissatisfies and even at times delights, when, you, when it meets your hunger, so too the longing to know God points to the existence of God and the goodness of God and the way that God satiates and satisfies and even at times delights when he meets your longing. And this text is about the elevation of God and all peoples moving to God as the object of their desires. This is about God becoming the most desirable one in all the world. This is a text about desire. And this text is not only a vision for individuals, but for the human race as a whole. And all the nations shall flow to it. Flow? So what's that word flow? Think about this. There's something magnetic about God that will in the end draw every one of us to himself. And this of course does not mean, and you and I know this also well, that not everyone recognizes their deep hunger for change as a longing for God. Not everybody sees it that way. But it is curious And it bears a little bit of considering that despite the rise of secularism and the steady deconstruction of organized religion from boomers to Gen X to millennials to Gen Z, disorganized spirituality is popping up in all kinds of surprising places. It turns out that trying to stamp out belief in God is like trying to get rid of peanut butter by squeezing it harder in your hand. What's going to happen? It's just going to ooze out through the cracks, right? And so we really shouldn't be all that surprised when people begin to ascribe near religious devotion to things like politics or money or sexual identity or self-image or diet or career. The fanatical devotion that we tend to give these things is our spiritual hunger oozing out through the cracks as secularism clamps down upon us. Our secular age can box us in, telling us that there's no heaven and there's no No heaven above and no hell beneath and no Emmanuel who is God with us. But the cracks in the frame have our spirituality oozing out of it. And we see it in all kinds of places. When you walk through the grocery store or drive through Willow Lawn or walk through your neighborhood at night and you see all the lights out, amongst all your neighbors who do not yet believe in the coming of Christ and Emmanuel who is God with us, Yet what you are beholding in their homes and in their decorations and what you are seeing in the candy aisle of Kroger 
is actually that longing and hunger for God coming out and manifesting in all kinds of strange ways. Now, this vision of Isaiah 2 lifts our gaze and it shows us that there will one day be a day when all of our misguided spiritualities will lock in to their one and true source, which is God himself. And you and I know that that day is not yet here and we feel the not yetness of that. And so desiring God doesn't actually come to us naturally, does it? And so the way that we anticipate this day is through practices that form our desire for God. And so I ask you a very simple question, but pretty hard to answer. What helps you love God? What helps you love God? Let's try something easier. The holidays are upon us. What helps you love your family? Some of you immediately thought spending less time with them, right? Ah, that helps you tolerate your family. That does not help you love your family. What helps you love your family? Is it time together? Is it retelling old stories? Is it curiosity about each other? One of the best things you can possibly do at family gatherings is simply to ask each other questions, is to show curiosity about the inner and outer life of your family members. Is it giving gifts to each other? Is it perhaps serving one another? You know, these, all of these things are not only the fruit of love for your family, they are actually practices that form love for your family. And so we do not only practice formation to shape our hearts and direct them towards the desire of God, but we also practice formation for the love of the world. There cannot be love of God without love of neighbor as well. And there cannot be love of neighbor without love of God. And so when we practice formation, we don't only do it for the desire for God, but also for the peace of the world. So let's shift our attention now and look at the other side of the coin in this text. We're in verse four. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Very famous couple of sentences there. It's a vision of, (laughs) which is interesting, because you know what this, this is a vision of God judging people. It's not a very popular idea. But what's the alternative to God judging people? It's people judging people, right? (laughs) Judgment's going to happen one way or another. Would you rather be judged by God or would you rather be judged by your neighbor? What we see here is that peace requires an absolute singular source. Justice is not arbitrary. It's not relative. It is subjective, but not in the way we tend to think because God is the subject. So what kind of peace comes from that kind of justice? Well, it's a reconciling peace. It's a peace where former enemies become harmonious neighbors. Listen, from every parent who breaks up kids fighting to every World Cup referee who blows his whistle and delivers a red card, to every circuit court judge who gives a ruling, and to every school principal who mediates a disagreement. All of them, intentionally or unintentionally, are anticipating a judgment, a kind of final judgment. And of course, as you might imagine, some of us do this very well. And other times, many of us, and we see around the world, do this very poorly. So what what Advent practices might you and I take up that form peace in us and in our city? Here's a different way to ask the same question. Where does the city of Richmond most need peace? And how might we anticipate the renewal of Richmond by practicing peace now? Might we consider the racial strife and division and hurt that pervades our city? You know, the division and wounds are far deeper than the emotions in our hearts and in our neighbors' hearts. They are embedded in neighborhoods. They run along city streets. They saturate school systems. Just last night, 
as I drove to Kroger in Willow Lawn with one of my daughters to pick up some groceries, we talked about how Northside and Battery Park and Highland Park are these neighborhoods that do not have a grocery store that sells healthy food. And we talked about how those neighborhoods form something of what you might call an urban food desert for those who don't own a car and who can't regularly afford to take a bus across town to a grocery store. And we talked together, she and I, about how someday it would be such a beautiful thing to see simply a grocery store built in one of those neighborhoods. Where does the city of Richmond most need peace? And how might we anticipate the renewal of Richmond by forming peace now? And so as we think about what this text calls us to, this formation for the desire for God and formation for the peace of the world, and this stunningly beautiful vision, so beautiful, in fact, that it gets quoted by people who don't believe in it all the time, right? Because the language itself is so evocative. Beating swords into plowshares, spears into, into pruning hooks, all nations flowing to the mountain of God. But as we think about that, we must recognize that formation is not this thing that we can opt in or opt out of. All of us, at all times and in all ways, are practicing formation. But if we are honest, it is not always this kind of formation, is it? Robert Mulholland in his book, Invitation to a Journey, puts it this way. Everyone is in a process of spiritual formation. We are being shaped either into the wholeness of the image of Christ or a horribly destructive caricature of that image. Destructive not only to ourselves, but also to others. For we inflict our brokenness upon them. And the direction of our spiritual life infuses all we do with imitations of either life or death. The idea is, and I hope if you walk away with one thing, this might actually be the one. That you are practicing spiritual formation all the time. Every moment of every day. And you do it in your shopping, and you do it on Amazon, and you do it in your eating, and you do it when you text your family members, and you do it when you go to work, and you do it when you come home, and you even do it when you sleep, and you do it when you arise. Everything you are doing is an act of spiritual formation, and it is either shaping you into the vision of this text, one who desires God above all else, and one who seeks and practices the peace of God in the world, or it forms you into something different. Or you might say, deforms you into something else. Uh, there's a very old quote from the Roman poet Virgil, where he writes, every man makes a God of his desire. And of course, we might expand that to say, every person makes a God of their desire. And so you might think for a moment, what do my practices tell me about what I desire the most? If someone were to evaluate simply my credit card statements and my texting and my emailing and my Google Calendar, what would those practices, what would my daily schedule tell a new stranger or an onlooker about what it is that I desire the most? And what are those practices forming or perhaps deforming in me? Is there perhaps some other desire that is actually shaping me and directing my heart and my affections towards it rather than to God? What about deforming peace? You know, this is a far lesser known text, but did you know that there's a different Old Testament text in the book of Joel chapter three, verses nine through 10, that says the exact opposite of this text in Isaiah, where it says to beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. 
And what's happening in that moment is God, through the prophet Joel, is actually calling his people to gird themselves up for a spiritual battle with evil. But the problem is that you and I make mistake our neighbor as the enemy, and we go to war against one another instead. And so we actually become sword-like and spear-like. There are sharp edges to me that inflict pain on everybody I come in contact with. And this happens in my marriage and it happens with my, in my parenting with my kids. It happens upwards towards my parents. It happens outwards towards my siblings. It happens with my neighbors and it even happens with many of you. Some of you bear wounds from me because there are sharp edges to me that have not yet been beaten off or worn smooth. It turns out that when we try to fix something, we tend to only make it worse. Have you ever had that experience? This happens to me all the time in cooking. This is a little bit embarrassing. But so often, I'll be making a meal for the family, and I'll be sitting there over a pot of soup or like even something as simple as making pancakes, and I won't have gotten things quite right. And I think if I just tinker with it a little bit, I can somehow make things right. And so I find myself there with a bowl of pancake batter, alternatively adding flour and then more water, and then too much water, okay, more flour, okay, too much flour, okay, more water. And before you know it, I have enough to make like a 600 pancakes for my poor like four little kids. And it still doesn't taste good because it turns out I forgot to add sugar, right? So when we encounter a problem, especially interior problems with ourselves, we go to work on self-improvement thinking that if we could just tinker with ourselves a little bit, we might be able to get it right. But so often when we do that, we actually make things worse rather than better. Even our best attempts at self-improvement and growth and change just end up furthering our own deformation. And so you've got to ask yourself in this Advent season, as we're all called to take up these practices, to desire God and to seek the peace of the world, how are we actually going to go about doing it if our best attempts at self-improvement and city improvement only tend to make things worse? The answer is actually found in this text, and it's in verse 3, because we skipped it. We moved right past it. Verse 2 gives us this call to desire God, and verse 4 gives us this call to seek the peace of the world. But in between the two lies verse 3, and it reads, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see, the conundrum of this vision is that it requires us to go up to the mountain of God. And most of us don't even want to. And even us that don't want to find that we're not very good mountain climbers. We cannot ascend to God. And what we need more than anything else is for God to descend to us. Christ is the one who comes down the mountain. Jesus is the word of the Lord issued forth from God the Father. Jesus is God's word spoken into being to us. And just as the mountain is lifted up to become the desire of the nations, so Christ was lifted up like the bronze serpent from the book of Exodus that all who look on him might be healed. And our swords and our spears and our sharp edges pierce Christ. And in the crucifixion of Jesus, we see the telos, a purpose of all of our violence. And we discover that Jesus becomes this seed that is buried into the ground that then springs up into new life. And Jesus takes our violence, our swords, and he uses it to bring forth peace and fruit in plowshares. Christ is the light of God that has become the light of the world. And Christ becomes, if we are willing to gaze upon him, our greatest desire. And in desiring Jesus, we find, to our surprise and delight, 
that we actually begin to desire God. Jesus comes to us as the Prince of Peace. In him, we not only find peace with God, but also the resources to be at peace with each other. You see, when God judges me and finds me, though I am guilty, to be innocent because of Christ, I find that I am unable to turn and level any kind of judgment against another person. And so what we need is not only formation. What we need is not only spiritual formation. What we need is gospel formation. We need the gospel of Jesus to form us and to shape us and to mold us and even transform us. Listen, uh, James K. Smith writes in this wonderful little book, You Are What You Love. He writes, the orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. And so as we conclude here, and as we begin the Advent season together as a parish family, I want to invite you to take up perhaps some new practices that might form and cultivate in you a love for God and also might cultivate and form through you the peace of the world. And you do these things not for self-improvement or necessarily city improvement, but you do them as acts of anticipation, recognizing that the culmination of all these practices will occur when Christ does fully and finally arrive. And so as the rest of our neighbors and friends and city are binge eating and feasting and celebrating all around us, getting to Christmas just a bit too early, you might think about fasting from food and eating scripture instead. You might think about prayers of waiting. This might sound so absurd it's moronic, but think about this. You might practice prayers of waiting. And what I mean is where you simply sit or kneel or stand in absolute silence and do nothing other than put your heart in a posture of waiting. You might do this outside under the stars. You might do this in the silence of your living room. You might do it in the darkness of your bedroom at night where you simply practice waiting and you experience in the waiting all of the not yetness that is happening inside of you. The person you, not, you are not yet the family you do not yet have, the career you do not yet have, the money you don't yet have, all of the not yetness of your life and you feel it and you sit in it and it forms in you this posture of waiting and you recognize that no amount of self-improvement or world transformation is gonna get you there until Christ returns. And what that does in you is you get you ready to receive. That posture of waiting prepares in you this readiness to receive. You might think about something like taking up the practice of the Advent wreath. And if you don't know how to do that, we'll help you. Where you sit around the table or in the living room, either by yourself or with those you live with, and you read these waiting texts from Scripture, and you light candles, and you sit in darkness, and you behold the light, which represents Christ, the light of the world. You might take up practices of peace. You might think about those with whom you are not yet reconciled. It might be some people in this room. <laughs> you might think about neighbors or coworkers or family members to whom you haven't spoken to a while because it's just too awkward. And you might think about reconciling with them in this season. You might realize that you yourself, as I, am the sword that must be beaten into the plowshare. My sharp edges must be worn off in this season. Y'all, we began by talking about this desire for change and how it's one of the common threads that has drawn all of us to be a church together. 
Advent is waiting for the change that we most deeply need within ourselves and in the world. In Advent, I recognize I am helpless to change myself and I am helpless to change the world. And so in Advent, I give myself to small practices of formation, not because they're going to perfect me or perfect the world, but because they, come, they become small acts of anticipation that make me into a waiting creature, a creature that is ready to receive Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this Advent season, would you help us to practice anticipation through formation? Would you help us to adopt these practices that would shape us from the outside in and then from the inside out, helping us to become the people you have made us to be and people who are ready to receive you, Lord Jesus. Amen.